0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel Vpro. At the beginning of this year, there was hope in Ukraine. The military was planning to launch a counteroffensive against Russia. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was optimistic. He spoke about the prospects for victory at the start of the year. Залишається кілька хвилин до нового року. Я хочу всім нам зараз побажати одного перемоги. І це головне. Одне побажання. Let this be the return of our people, he said, warriors to their families, captives to their homes.
1: Ukraine entered 2023 very optimistic about the future. They had reclaimed a lot of territory from Russian forces. Huge amounts of Western arms were pouring into Ukraine. Western officials were hopeful that they could exploit those gains and go further, force Russian President Vladimir Putin into a negotiation. But now, at the close of 2023,
0: things are looking really difficult for Ukraine. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. She and our colleagues have spoken with dozens of officials from Ukraine, the U.S., and Europe. They've asked about the war, and they've gotten an inside look at what's happened with Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive.
1: So this counteroffensive that Ukraine launched in 2023 was supposed to be a really defining moment for the country and its fight against Russian forces. And what Western officials hoped would be a real turning point in allowing Ukraine to come to a negotiating table eventually in a strong, favorable position that officials hope would eventually result in a favorable settlement for Ukraine.
0: What's clear is that things haven't gone as planned. Ukraine is at a stalemate. Not only did the counteroffensive fail to meet its objectives,
1: but Western support is much more uncertain. The United States is now uncertain in terms of whether or not it will continue the strong military support that it's provided. Uh, There's Greater and greater political questions in Europe and the future of Ukraine's ability not just to reclaim the territory that Russia captured after its 2022 invasion, but also its ability to hold off Russia is in greater doubt than ever before.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 6th. Today, as winter approaches in Ukraine— There are a lot of questions about how Ukraine has fought Russia and how the U.S. has shaped Ukraine's battle plan. Missy shares her reporting and what it reveals about what's next. So take me back to before this most recent push started. What was the state of the war at that point? um, And why was there a sense of optimism?
1: Yeah, there was a real sense of optimism because Ukrainian forces performed much better than anybody expected after Putin's invasion in February 2022. So Russia's goal initially had been to take over the whole country, topple the Zelensky government in Kiev, occupy the capital, and they really failed to do that. Ukraine mounted this incredibly uh, resourceful defense of Western Ukraine and Central Ukraine, and um, then later in the fall, Ukrainian forces were m- able to make these surprise advances. They took back much of the Kharkiv region, and then they forced Russia out of the city of Kherson in the south, Which both of which were seen as really big victories. And so Russia really was on its heels in the fall of 2022, and that set the stage for the planning of what was supposed to be a sp- counteroffensive. In the um, opening months of 2023, you had Zelensky describing 2023 as the year of victory. You had senior Ukrainian officials uh, telling their um, compatriots that they would be vacationing in Crimea (laughs) later in the year. And, you know, I mean, I think it's we have to understand that a lot of this was for public consumption. Clearly, Ukraine knew that this was going to be a difficult fight. The Ukrainian military is much, much smaller than the Russian military, despite the weapons and support from the west that it's it's much less well armed it doesn't have the sophisticated arsenal that russia has and and importantly it doesn't have an air force in the way that russia has and so they were optimistic they were also trying to you know rally support at a really difficult moment for their country um, but there really was hope that they could use that resourcefulness to press their advantage in 2023
0: <laughs> So talk to me about the genesis of this counteroffensive and who was part of the thinking behind how it was going to take place. Yeah, so the United States, as the chief military supporter, the biggest backer of
1: Ukraine, uh, was um, basically playing the role of Enabling the planning for this offensive and advising them and also providing the bulk of the equipment, the United States hosted a series of military war games Hmm. that took place in Germany, and those involved American officials, British officials, and of course, Ukrainian officials who spent months over the course of the winter and spring of 2022, you know, playing out the different scenarios for this offensive. And the goal was to figure out you know, what are the best geographic areas that we can press? What are the best tactical approaches? What, are, what is the equipment that we need? What are the potential losses that we need to contemplate? And so, you know, this is a typical thing that you would do before a major offensive. But it was an important effort in shaping the concept at the end of the day, Ukraine's military, including the chief military officer, General um, Valery Zalushnyi, were the, you know, he and his advisors were the ones who were going to make the final decisions, Mm -hmm. but the United States and Britain played a key role in sort of teeing those up.
0: Yeah, that, that's really interesting to me, this idea that they're bringing Ukrainians into a U.S. military base and basically coaching them on, you know, here's how we think you should do it or here's how um, – here's advice or strategy. Um, th- that seems like an interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly the way the U.S. military would describe it. They would say, you know, we're coaching. We're not the ones who are making the ultimate decisions But, you know, the U.S. military is larger. It has more experience. It has the equipment um, and has used the equipment that Ukraine was getting for the first time. And so, you know, it was sort of this delicate relationship where the United States could suggest and advise, but at the same time, you know, they weren't going to be the ones on the battlefield. And one of the interesting things that occurred during the course of these exercises is you started to see some differences in terms of what the United States Thought was the best course of ac- action for this counteroffensive mm. and what Ukraine thought that they should be doing. And that's Say more about that. Yeah, that played out in terms of, you know, the allocation of forces and how they should go about trying to push back Russia. Essentially, the United States thought that Ukraine should mass its forces towards the south, towards the Sea of Azov, which it saw as most strategically important in terms of cutting Russia off from the occupied Crimean Peninsula. And they saw that as something that could have the biggest strategic effect. Meanwhile, Ukrainian military leaders and political leaders felt like they needed to allocate forces across at least three axes to the east towards the city of Bakhmut, which was a big focal point for Ukraine in the winter and spring of um, 2022 and 2023, and then towards another axis in the south and then a third axis in the south. So they felt like, because they had this massive 600-mile-long front line and because Russia, Russian forces were allocated a, up and down Ukraine, essentially, they felt like they had no choice but to have a more distributed um, force. And that was one of the sort of disagreements going into the counteroffensive that ended up being significant, I think, when it came to the actual battle.
0: Yeah. So if there's this tension between the U.S. and Ukrainian military officials on these questions of strategy, and I can imagine that there might have been a sense from Ukrainians of like, well, ultimately, we're the ones who are putting our lives on the line in in, in this war. Um, How did that start to play out? Like, what was the strategy that ended up being put in place? And how did it go? Yeah, so Ukraine
1: decided to go with its three-pronged strategy, which was essentially pushing um, to the east and then along two axes towards the south. And they felt like, you know, Russia's much larger force and willingness to sacrifice troops basically didn't allow them to mount this, you know, single front approach that the United States had advocated. And another thing that Ukrainian military leaders were constantly saying to the United States is... Essentially, they were being asked to fight in a way that Western countries, NATO countries would never ask their troops to fight, hmm. which was without a chance of trying to achieve air superiority or at least you know contesting the airspace. Um, and one of the issues that Ukrainian officials have highlighted again and again is Russia's superior air force. It's much larger and much more sophisticated air force and how Ukraine believes that that has been a really – defining handicap for it on the battlefields. As one former senior Ukrainian official that we spoke with pointed out, Ukraine has these aging MiG-29 fighter jets that have um, a firing range of 20 miles. Russia, meanwhile, has these advanced Su-35s that can fire as far away as 75 miles. And so Ukraine just can't compete in the sky, They wanted F-16s from the West. They wanted other sophisticated Western air assets in order to counter Russia's much more advanced air force. And the Biden administration up until May of this year thought that that would be too dangerous, that that potentially could escalate the conflict with Russia. And so as a matter of fact, Ukraine went into the conflict without what they said was this you know, sort of fundamental thing that would allow them to achieve
0: victory. And they felt like they were never really able to overcome that handicap. So then what were some of the signs that things weren't going as planned in this counteroffensive?
1: Even before the offensive launched, there were signs that there were going to be major problems. Russia spent the winter fortifying its Forces, its its front line, its defenses in Ukraine. They laid just these massive minefields. They built trenches. They laid concrete barriers called dragon's teeth. They basically did things that played to their strengths militarily, which was to mount a very um, intense static defense. And so as Ukraine went into the counteroffensive and the planned initial planned launch which was supposed to be according to American military officials we talked to was which was supposed to be in April they were facing a much stronger enemy than they had been the previous fall and they had some you know concerns about whether or not they had enough equipment about whether or not their forces were ready they had sent a number of forces out to Germany to be trained over the winter some of those were you know fresh recruits and so what ended up occurring was that there was a delay in the launch from April until the beginning of June and you know according to the Ukrainian officials we talked to that was you know a sort of unavoidable as they tried to get everything in order and American military officials argued that that was actually a sort of unfortunate and consequential decision because some people that we spoke with in the US government and this was a uh, Not a consensus view. There were different views among senior officials that we talked to. Some people believed that that um, was consequential because Russia made significant advances in intensifying the minefields, essentially, during that period. And once Ukraine launched, it was this sort of immediate pivot off of uh, the strategy that had been developed over the course of the winter, which was supposed to be Ukraine fighting in classic Western military strategy that is supposed to involve a large mechanized advance, so basically larger units of troops using armored vehicles, and they were supposed to penetrate the Russian lines in these larger groups of of troops. And what ended up happening after the first basically four days of the counteroffensive was that Because those forces, as they tried to advance, got pounded by Russian artillery, helicopters, there were a lot of casualties, Ukraine's military leadership decided that they— didn't want to keep trying this, that it was never going to work. And so they made a decision to switch tactics to something that was very different than what had been planned. They were going to have small, very small teams of people on foot trying to go through these minefields and carve out pathways. It was going to be a much slower approach, but it was one that Ukraine's military leadership thought would preserve manpower and equipment that they really needed.
0: And what do you think is significant about that? The fact that after these months of war games and strategy sessions that just a few days into this counteroffensive that Ukraine had to so radically kind of change their, their plan?
1: I think it shows that there were some assumptions about what would be possible on the part of the the Western planners and the the Western officials that were supporting Ukraine that didn't end up playing out, that, you know, maybe they misjudged the ability of Ukraine's military to mount this new kind of warfare after a fairly short period of training. And it also revealed that, you know, in the end— the battlefield commanders were going to use their judgment um, and try to conserve what they felt like were their most precious resources, which was this very limited force and then this equipment that they had gotten from the, from the West in a way that, you know, sort of ended up abandoning this plan that is sort of that had been meticulously constructed over the winter.
0: After the break, how this precarious moment in Ukraine complicates the Biden administration's push for more funding for the war. We'll be right back. So where do things stand right now? Uh, how did the counteroffensive continue, and what what are the state of things?
1: Well, Ukraine was able to take back some territory, you know, 200 square miles, which was far short of what had been hoped for. They did not make this advance towards the Sea of Azov that had been hoped for. And now Ukraine's going into the winter uh, having to think about where do they go now? They're in the process of planning their path ahead militarily, But the biggest question mark right now is what support they're going to have from the West. The United States has been by far the largest single backer of Ukraine, and now the future of that support is really in doubt. And it has the government in Kyiv incredibly worried because if you cut off American support, their ability to sustain the campaign and continue to hold off Russia, which has a much, much larger pool of money and manpower and weaponry to, to draw from, um, their ability to hold Russia off is really in question.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to hear more about American thinking here, because in some ways it seems like what the U.S.'s approach has been since the beginning of this war is, look, we don't want to be in a direct war with Russia. But we do want the Ukrainians to win this war. And in what ways can we kind of be like a shadow player here and be helping and pushing and supporting them from behind? But it seems like in this scenario that they've kind of reached the limit of like if you're not willing to be a combatant, there's only so much that like coaching um, uh, and other forms of support can do if, you know, if it's falling short of what Ukrainians say that they actually need in order to win.
1: Yeah, the Biden administration has really had these twin goals in Ukraine. One is to avoid any direct conflict between the United States and Russia, which is the world's largest nuclear power, uh, we have to remember. And the other one is to you know enable Ukraine by giving military and financial support to hold off Russia and to the extent possible, reclaim its territory that's been taken by Moscow. But, you know, it seems like at times those two goals have really been in tension, one could argue, because the Biden administration has stopped short of giving Ukraine some of the equipment that at least Ukraine believes is necessary to allow it to have a decisive battlefield victory. Um, And The reason for that is that the Biden administration does not want to have things spiral out of control between Russia and the United States between Russia. And NATO, and so now we're in a situation where even that strategy is in question because, while the U.S. public and the U.S. Congress supported this very generous um, assistance to Ukraine from the time that the the invasion occurred in 2022 till now, that's really no longer the case. At least in terms of the ability for Congress to pass that aid. President Biden requested $60 billion in additional assistance to Ukraine just recently, and so far Congress has not passed that, and there's increasing resistance uh, in Congress, especially in the House of Representatives among some Republicans.
0: And we saw Biden talk about this again today. I mean, he made a statement about how Congress must pass billions of dollars in Ukraine aid, and he talked about it with some pretty strong warnings.
1: This cannot wait. Congress needs to pass
0: supplemental funding for Ukraine before they break for the holiday resources. Simple as that. Frankly, I think it's stunning that we've gotten to this point in the first place. While Congress and Republicans in Congress are willing to give Putin the greatest gift he could hope for and abandon our global leadership, <clears throat> not just
1: Ukraine, but beyond that,
0: This week, we saw Republicans walk out of a meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken where they were supposed to be talking about Ukraine and the situation there. Um, Some Republicans have said that they are skeptical, that Ukraine actually needs all this funding. Some just want the funding tied with with um, action on the southern border and um, dealing with immigration. But whatever the case may be, it's clear that Republicans in Congress are not necessarily willing to play ball on Ukraine anymore. So I wonder, like, where does that leave the White House um, now that things have gotten so much more polarized? So the White House has been making this case
1: in the past couple of weeks that the United States— needs to continue to support Ukraine, that Congress needs to authorize this additional assistance because it matters for the United States, not just to help Ukraine, but also to preserve what they would call, you know, global norms, to make it clear to authoritarians the world over that they can't just invade their neighbors, that global treaties and laws actually matter, but that has been, you know, a, a difficult case for the Biden administration to make increasingly because of competing priorities because of questions about how the the war is going and certainly the problems that Ukraine has faced in its counteroffensive and its inability to demonstrate decisive battlefield advances um contribute to that.
0: I think it's important to remind people of The cost of this for Ukrainians. I mean, as of early 2023, what what was it, 130,000 Ukrainian troops who were killed or injured as part of this war. I'm wondering what is morale um, among Ukrainian people at this point in the war, especially now that we are seeing another war crop up in a different part of the world that has started to draw attention away from the Ukrainian struggle.
1: Yeah, the the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas militants really has been an additional challenge for Ukraine in terms of sustaining the attention and support here in Washington. President Zelensky has had very strong support from Ukrainians since the war broke out. And and Ukrainians overwhelmingly support pushing back against Russia and trying to get every inch of Ukrainian territory back. But, you know, as the war goes on, it will become, it has become harder, and it will become harder to sustain morale. Just because, you know, Ukrainians are suffering, there's, you know, there are ongoing missile and drone attacks. Clearly, people on the front lines have suffered horrifically. Um, So, you know, the ability for Ukraine to marshal its people in support of this very difficult campaign and all the sacrifices that that entails could become more of a problem in the future.
0: Missy, It's it frankly sounds like it is fair to say that this conflict has reached a stalemate. And clearly that is incredibly costly and probably demoralizing for Ukrainians and for the Ukrainian military. But I wonder for Russia what that means for them and what it means for President Vladimir Putin.
1: Putin has shown no signs following the initial months of the war of dialing back his objectives in Ukraine. He still wants to hold on to these regions in the east. He still wants to hold on to Crimea. He still wants Russia to stay as a strong force within Ukrainian territory. And in fact, the what's happening here in Washington right now, the focus on the conflict in the Middle East, the increasing doubts about the future of Ukrainian aid in Congress are very favorable for the Kremlin. So in some ways, time could be on Russia's side, and that's the challenge that both Ukraine and Washington need to deal with right now.
0: Missy, thank you so much. Thank you. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Renny Svernovsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Thank you to Arjun Singh, Peter Finn, and Isabel Khrushudian. We have some exciting news to share. If you are already a Washington Post subscriber, you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. If you're not yet a subscriber to the Washington Post, this is a great time to start. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. AI PCs built for business with Intel Core Ultra Processors and Intel vPro are optimized for hundreds of AI apps and tools to boost user productivity, all with AI-powered threat detection. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.